um, the librarian's like, oh, I know your book. And I'm like, I am in another state in a library I have never entered. And the librarian knew my book by just looking at my book tote. And she said that it was because of my Twitter posts. Hey everybody and welcome to another You Make a Tributive Verse. Team Versi is Brandon Jennerette, author and outdoors mom, John Seymour, editor, author, illustrator, and data guy, and me, Josh Munkin, science communicator, dad, and author who misses the old Twitter. Federico Arabia is the sweetest guy. We recorded this episode with him around Easter this year, which seems like ages ago now. But it seems like a kind of warm, loving gift to be able to release this episode today around the end of your holidays. This conversation is like a brain hug, but where the person hugging you also gives you tips on marketing books and getting Kirkus reviews. Speaking of Kirkus, we saved the real meat of how Federico got his Kirkus review and what impact that has had on how his debut hit the market until the very end of the conversation. So stay tuned, it's all gold. And however well Federico's debut novel, Pedro and Danielle, has been received since its release is not enough to do justice to how important a story it is. You owe it to yourself to take time to read this incredible story. We're going to get to Federico's verse, but first, our sponsor, Justin Colon, is offering a six-week intensive course through the Kidlet Hive on humor, and I would seriously consider it if I were you. Nothing personal. I just know what Justin brings to the table when it comes to understanding humor. His class will meet weekly in the evening starting on January 9th and running through just before Valentine's Day. Join the class for actionable tips, tricks, tools, and techniques and other T-words to up-level your laughs. Also stay on the lookout for Justin's editorial services, which are customizable and infinitely valuable to helping your work shine, whether it's a query, manuscript, portfolio, or whatever. Keep a keen eye on KidLit Hive for more of what Justin has cooking. And now here is Federico Arabia's verse. Gorgeous that is. Yeah, that that's what I said. It's beautiful. And yeah, he was saying he got it printed on metal, so it really like pops. I assume they would send you a just whatever high res version of that that you wanted to, you know, so de- decorate um, your home. Yeah. They yeah. uh it's interesting. The, the what you get is a nice, high resolution, small file. Um, but I know enough about Photoshop and other programs to make it a huge file that'll translate well when it's being printed at large, um, like like a poster or or the fabric that I had it printed on. I don't know if you've seen the. Um, of course, I don't have any here. The um, I've made book totes with the fabric. Oh, uh, cool. And they're really, really nice. Uh, they take a long time to make. But I, <laughs> not just print yeah. on the book tote, but make the actual book tote. Is that right? I'm sorry? Not not just print onto a book tote, but make the actual book tote? I, I made the book tote with the material, yes. Wow. So oh, wow. I've, made, I've made about 20. It takes, uh, each one probably takes four hours. So um, oh, wow. they, co- really? they cost $250. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, right. I'm giving them all away um, to, you know, uh, my street team. And then I'm, I'll be giving them away to 
uh, teachers at NCTE or librarians at the ALA conference, um, you know, because they're just, uh, they're, I think they're really nice. And I've also, um, I've made scarves out of the material. I mean, it's really, it lends itself well to all kinds of fabric. Um, and I'm actually making Easter hats. Oh, wow. That we're going to. Um, so we have hats that we bought in Mexico and I'm making bands. Um, so the, the printing came out just that in one inch, you can see the entire cover, just a line of all the covers. It's just really, really nice. Wow. I have, I, I have to believe, I mean, that's, that's incredible in itself, but I have to believe that I would do, I would do the same thing. If I, if I had a book come out and I had a, just a gorgeous color cover, I would do just everything with it. Every craft imaginable, like leverage that in as many ways as I can to the yeah, point of being so, obnoxious to my loved ones. I, <laughs> I am having a uh, sports jacket made for my launch with oh, the cover. cool. Like um, in, with the liner? Yes. Cover, so, that's um, amazing. There is a, there is a um, tailor near here. Uh, it's interesting. He is the tailor. He owns his shop, but he is sending the material and my measurements to Montreal to have it made oh. in Canada. And then it will be shipped back to me, hopefully in time for my launch. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, so I'm using... I'm using the cover for so much swag and, and promotional because why not? Right. I'm not you're giving oh me, yeah, you're giving I me am, inspiration, Federico. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I really am very introverted, but um, something switched when I made this, finally wrote this book and decided to help market it. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, if I don't do it, no one else will, and no one else can market it like I can until people to start to read it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, it's really just important for me, uh, you know, for my particular approach to marketing to do everything I can. And uh, thankfully, I have the financial means to somewhat to be able to do a lot of what I'm doing. Um, and I'm doing this really full time. There is no other... Um, time commitment that I'm doing. Um, other than, you know, I do volunteer work for SCWI and, and other organizations. So, you know, I'm juggling all of that, but it's really all about writing right now. Oh, that's really nice to be able to have, you know, just like full stretches of the day set aside for yeah. writing and just, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that sounds really nice. Um, I mean, but they've certain, certainly said on the marketing point too, to, you know, f only follow the marketing threads that are of interest to you because there's no sort of guarantee that it's necessarily going to pay off in massive numbers of sales, you know, commensurate with the, the amount of time that you're putting in. So it certainly pays. Yeah. It, um, so I am writing a blog for SCBWI. I'll be the guest blogger for the month of May. And so I am one of the blog posts I'm writing is about marketing because I've learned so much in what I'm doing. And I was also in the poets and writers publicity incubator. So I learned a lot there as well. Um, so I'm, I am listing bullet points on everything that I've done that I recommend that people could do. And one of the things that I uh, figured out early is to use bit.ly to shorten URLs. Mm -hmm. 
because Bitly tracks every time that URL is clicked. And that helps you tremendously figure out what's working and what isn't. For instance, in the first month of my posting about um, my ARC being on NetGalley and on Edelweiss, 500 people clicked on those two links. Those are my two links that clicked on it. And, uh, you know, I have to say that if I had not done that, I don't know if those 500 people would have been aware of my book. So I am not saying that that's leading to 500 sales, but I'm suggesting that it's leading to 500 people being aware of it that would not have been aware of it if I had not done that. And this was before my Kirkus review. So um, and part of what I say in the blog is, you know, there's a before Kirkus and an after Kirkus because <laughs> when you have a, a started review on Kirkus, things change. Um, people become aware of it in ways that you as an author can't possibly know what's happening behind the scenes. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I feel like I've been talking a lot to authors recently about money and marketing because there's a lot of there's just a lot of like mystery, I guess. Like you don't you don't really know until you know. Like these are these are things that we sort of are aware of, right? Like Kirkus is a big deal. We know that. But yes. we don't know how, like in what way, you know, did it, how did does it, it become change? a big like what, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like what did that do for you? Or like, how did, like, who noticed you that maybe wouldn't have? Well, so um, let me tell you a little bit about the before and the after Kirkus. Yeah. So um, before Kirkus, uh, I went to the SCWI conference in New York city and I walked into the New York public library to the children's section. And um, as I approached with, I had swag in my bag. Um, the librarian's like, oh, I know your book. And I'm like, oh. I am in another state in a library I have never entered. And the librarian knew my book by just looking at my book tote. That is very cool. And she said that it was because of my Twitter posts. And huh. I have targeted... Um, library Twitter and librarians of Twitter in a lot of my posts because, you know, authors, if, if, we're, if you're going to do the marketing, you know, the way that uh, will most likely lead to a movement of the needle, you need to target booksellers, librarians, and teachers in so children. So when you say target, like on Twitter, are you tagging them and you're saying, hey, like, look at my book, like, check this out? Or are you are you using like specific language or how are you doing that? There are uh, various ways to do it. So you can target specific people. You can target. Um, I didn't do it at that time, but I, I am now doing I'm targeting the New York Public Library, the Chicago Public Library the San Francisco Public Library, you can find all of those links. And in most cases, you can tag them even within a, uh, an image. I, I always recommend using images, videos, or, or is it GIF or GIF? I, yeah, I, right. I, I never know how to say that, but I, I got you. Yeah, so <laughs> you, can, you can tag people either in those so to save you your 280 characters, or you can tag them in the actual post. 
Um, and then there are uh, hashtags you can use. And so uh, librarians of Twitter, library Twitter, teachers of Twitter, uh, teacher Twitter. Um, there are a lot of different, like, uh, you can just do teachers or teacher. Yeah. You kind that, of learn I mean, which that, ones kind of work. That is fascinating and super helpful because I, I mean, we've talked to a bunch of people on the podcast and nobody has ever mentioned that specifically. Like we're all, like I said, we're all aware that you should be doing this, but the specifics are sort of just like, you know, lost in the atmosphere. So I appreciate you sharing all that. Like that's well, really the, helpful. And so again, the reason that I know that it works is because of this particular anecdote. Um, but, you know, I, I have to say that if the, New York Public Library is aware of Pedro and Daniel, um, then probably other librarians in the country or even in the, in the world, because it is kind of a worldwide platform, um, are aware of my book because of my posts and the way I'm tagging and um, hashtagging, I guess is a different way of saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then, you know, and then the other thing that happened, again, before Kirkus, is I walked into a New Hampshire bookstore, again, out of state from where I am, a place where I've never entered. And again, the bookseller uh, said, oh, yeah, I know your book. People have been ordering it from us. I mean, um, how cool is that? That's so cool. I mean, congratulations just for like, just to reach that sort of like status with your book. And I know this book in particular, you know, is such a book of like, your, your heart and your soul and just your whole, I mean, that's like the core of your being, like to, to have it recognized like that. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah th thank you. I mean, that, th and I think that is why I'm so dead set on doing everything I can for this particular book. Yeah. Um, and I can understand that, you know, people may not want to, or may not be able to, but for this book, if I'm ever going to write another book, it's not going to be anything as personal as this one. Yeah. I am writing another, uh, an adult fiction novel that is also personal, um, that revolves around um, a relationship that has a 9-11, um, you know, uh, link to it. Oh, but um, other than that, I don't really have another one that in mind that I'm going to write that will be as personal as Pedro Daniel. You left it all, all on the field in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> With the I, scope of Pedro Daniel. That's sort of a great. I I I really was interested in asking about that that piece of it, like being so raw and vulnerable in that way, and putting it on the page. I I am in the middle of sort of writing, um, drafting a novel that is also really personal, um, and I have to take these emotional breaks from it mm. because it's very. It just feels very intense because you have to you have to go back in time and yes. live those moments, right? Yes. So it's it's great in a way because it's a lot of catharsis and working through things and like all the stuff, but it's also very like, depending on what moment it is, it could be really fun, but it could also be like really hard or sad or heartbreaking. So I just, I wonder how that was for you. Like, how did that, was it really intense like that for you? Uh, yes. Um, I, so I would say I have read my book um, at least 200 times in all of the revisions. I mean, I just have really, you know, you can probably tell by how emotionally raw it is. And 
I have cried so much writing this book and revising and reading it, um, even to this day. And when I got my physical arc, I reread it. And then when I actually got my first copy of the book, I reread it. Wow. Because it's, it, it is so, each step is, is a milestone in it. Um, you know, when you actually see your book for the first time in physical form, uh, it's like, it's a new, it, it's, it's completely new. Um, and so I had to reread it. And um, I, there are times where, uh, you know, my, I'm sitting next to my husband reading and he'll look over at me and say, like, oh my God, you're reading your book. Because <laughs> the tears are just coming out. Or as you probably know, I think you guys have read at least part of the book. Um, there are times where I just start laughing because there are some really funny scenes in the book. Um, because as I've said a few times in, in some of the um, blogs that I've been in, Daniel was one of the funniest people I have ever known. And I really tried to channel him when I wrote his stories um, because he, he was, uh, you know, he didn't have the speech challenges that I had or still have to some extent. Um, so he could say something off the top of his head, like in seconds in a reaction to something and have everyone just laughing. And it would take me, well, just from writing this book, uh, it could take many, many attempts and revisions to channel and to write his personality in his uh, in the quips that he he says in the book. You you do him you do him honor. Um, I, I one of my reflections going back a couple of minutes though is that I mean I'm I'm a picture book writer because I don't. I don't have the attention or uh, or the time necessarily to sit down and write anything longer. I cannot imagine, even for one of my picture book manuscripts, uh, reading it 200 times. <laughs> it's enough for me to get through it the one time to get it written and yeah. done. Um, so kudos to your dedication. Yeah, um, I, I guess I would say I'm a little obsessive. Yeah. <laughs> in the best way possible. Right. I think that is one, a natural line in the book. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm a little obsessive when I put my mind to something and, and I do want to, in, in general, I want to excel in the things that I do that mean, mean a lot to me. Uh, and so that's part of the part of what I knew I needed to do when I started writing this book and which is probably why it took me 30 years to actually sit down and do it. Um, so just, just to dig into the Daniel part a little bit mm -hmm. more. So, so my story is similar, um, in the fact that I, so I'm writing about my time in college and my best friend who is now gone. Um, she died 12 years ago. Um, but she was also the funniest person that I've ever met and mm -hmm. trying to capture that voice is really hard. And it's also, it's also really interesting to research your own life. I don't know if you've if you came across that, but I'm like trying to put together write these memories and I'm going through like old journal entries and I'm contacting, you know, old like mutual friends and trying to sort of like get her voice, like piece it together somehow. Like I I just am left with this sort of like feeling like this imprint of her, but it's really hard to like 
put that on the page when she's not here. Like I can't call her up and just be like, Hey, remember that time when we did whatever? And then like get her voice or like how she said it or the cadence. So like, how did you, how did you do that? Well, so I have been obsessively writing this book in my mind Mm. for, you know, over 30 years since Daniel died. Um, I, one of the scenes in the book, I, I, do tell Daniel that I want to write our story, um, and that is an actual true story. Um, and so since then, I have been obsessively writing it in my book. And, you know, I, I've mentioned many times that I'm neurodivergent and part of what it, and also mentioned a lot of it in the book is like my mind is constantly going and writing. And, um, you know, even as I'm talking to you, I have, I have images in my head, in my mind, I have sounds and words and other things. So, which makes having a conversation very challenging. (laughs) But you um, appear to be very focused. (laughs) (laughs) But so I have been writing these stories in my head and I've been kind of deciding which stories I would want to write to really channel Daniel. And, um, so I have been really kind of focusing on some of the, some of his mannerisms and some of the words he would say. Um, some of it was just the look, so I'd have to kind of explain the look on his face. And, uh, and you know, we were talking a little bit about kind of uh, researching. I, I did so much research for this book because when I first found out that it was considered historical fiction, that was very humbling because mm-hmm. you know 60s 70s is historical it's it was a long time ago and um and so i had to really uh double check every time i wrote a story to make sure that it was logistically right in terms of the uh, of what was going on in the world um you know mentioning uh certain things like um uh the Vietnam War. Um, I believe I mentioned Nixon. I did mention Nixon at some point. I've revised and eliminated certain parts, so I don't remember if that actually is still in the book. But um, So there were certain moments in time that I had to capture, um, and I had to make sure that it was in the right chapter to make sense historically. And uh, I did a lot of research about... Um, the church. I mean, we could talk about the church for a long time. Um, and, you know, as I was doing some of the research about what was going on with my brother when he was in the seminary, uh, is when I first found out about the doctrine of discovery, which, um, you know, it, the doctrine of discovery has been around for over 500 years, um, kind of hiding in plain sight. And I didn't know about it. You know, I went to parochial school for six years. And, um, I always had my, my doubts about a lot of the teachings in the church. Um, there were a lot of inconsistencies that I mentioned also in the book. Um, but, you know, deep down, there were certain, there were certain things that I always wondered, like, what was the Pope dur- doing during, um, you know, the slave trade? What was the Pope doing during colonialization? 
What was the Pope doing during the Holocaust? Uh, those are things that I've always wondered. Like, you know, this is one of the most powerful men in the world, leader of one of the largest or maybe the largest churches in the world. Why wasn't he doing more? And I stumbled across the Doctrine of Discovery, and it was eye-opening. It was um, it was it, it's shameful, both that I didn't know about it, and also that it it is something that actually happened. That the Pope actually wrote these papal bulls that um, helped legitimize the slave trade and um, helped propel colonialism throughout the world and. Uh, all of the atrocities that happened to the indigenous peoples in the Americas and in Africa. Um, so, you know, there is so much that I learned in researching my book that I did not know about. And to be clear, it doesn't go as far back as <laughs> the slave trade and beyond, but, but it's, it's oh, relevant it's to the, um, to, to the subject matter of, you know, what you're, what you're sort of walking through with Danielle's uh, seminary time. Right. Yeah. Right. I've had a little bit of a challenge sort of getting myself right with the way that your book is categorized. And I'm sure you must have too. Yes. Um, how there's multiple questions here. How much of it is fictionalized? And also, are you right with the notion of calling it historical fiction? Or is it a fictional memoir, which is not a real category, I suppose? I mean, how, how have you explored that? Um, we went back and forth a lot with that. And um, so there are a, a few ways that I would answer that. First, um, I wanted it to be as much as possible 50-50 Pedro and Daniel. Mm. And uh, to some extent, if it's 50-50 somebody else, it makes it less memoir to me um, mm -hmm. because I really do want it to be about both characters. And, um, you know, the, the idea of how much of it is fictionalized is really hard to, to explain. Um, almost all of it is based on actual events. Um, you know, I have... Uh, change names protect, to protect the innocent. I forgot. That's from some show. I forgot which one. Yeah, uh, right. Some crime show. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, some of the, what I write are also composites. Some of the characters are composites. Some of the scenes are composites. Mm -hmm. um, that, I, that makes more sense to just put them all together into one scene and one person. Um, like for instance, uh, Betty, the, uh, older woman who is a friend of Daniel's who, who dies of AIDS. Um, she is a composite of women like her who were, um, both affected by HIV and AIDS themselves. And also, uh, so many women who were, um, surrogate or foster mothers and parents to so many who were estranged or ostracized by their actual families because they were either gay or had HIV. Um, so I wanted to honor uh, women like Betty uh, in that in that scene. Kind of in in aggregate, 
kind of yes yeah yes embody them in a character that makes a lot of sense yeah i <clears throat> i've I find myself doing the same thing. Like I'm having to take liberties with, you know, what, like things that happened. Like I have a snippet of like a memory and I'm like, where did that come from? Where is that like joke? You know, where's that seed? Where did it start? And I sort of have to extrapolate and work backwards and be like, okay, this is to the best of my knowledge. And based on, you know, what Sarah would have said or what, you know, my other friends would have said in the situation, this is how it came about. And then to move the novel forward, you know, I have, I layer in, you know, whatever it is that I'm trying to get across. So, but it's, it's an interesting thing to do that again with, with your own, with your own life to sort of like, you know, have to extrapolate things. Cause it was so long ago. Like for right. me, college was 25 years ago. So it's, you know, my memory is very blurry. Sure. We're the same age, Brenna. I, I take issue with you bringing up how long it's been. <laughs> hey, everybody. No goofy voices this time in the mid-episode break. I got to save those for a special occasion, which this is, of course. But still, let's do some reviews and shout-outs. John's review this week is Lou, written and illustrated by Brianna Carzu. Who could have thought that a fire hydrant could provide such a profound message around the pursuit of self-discovery? Lou delivers multiple layers about finding purpose, all while homing in on an empathetic message that most, if not everyone, can relate to. What are we really meant to do? And just like the story, the cut paper illustrations are flawless. 10 fully functioning fire hydrants out of 10. Brenna's review for this week is Seals Are Jerks by Jared Chapman. And this is another one that I personally could not believe is real because I was not aware of this, uh, the, the potential that you could actually title something Seals Are Jerks and have it uh, be published. I, I love that reality. Uh, here's Brenda's actual review. Love seals, love penguins. Well, so does our main character, Lorelei, and she's willing to go to great lengths to, pr to prove that seals and penguins are best friends. This delightful satire turned into fiction discusses real facts about both seals and penguins while forcing our beloved Lorelei to come to a shocking realization. The jaunty illustrations and fun humor make this a must-have for your home library. And I'm absolutely going to check this out at first convenient opportunity. My review is a case study in something I'd love to do better on my own personal writing. The Bear Ate Your Sandwich by Julia Sarconi Roach builds, builds, builds toward one key punchline at the end of the story. You don't get to see who's narrating until the final few spreads. And until then, the story is framed like a sort of gentle bumbling done by a bear who wanders into a city and gets hungry for people food. The question at the end about whether or not the bear actually did eat the sandwich or if the narrator is lying is maybe what makes this book so great. We have also two shout-outs this week from our friend Jillian Hoffman lately of something called You May Contribute a Verse, as it happens. Get your own shout-out by heading to our link tree at, I'm just going to take a stab at saying it out loud, linkter.ee slash verse show. That's the URL, but just go to Linktree and, uh, and search for verse show um, to find how to get your own shout out of a friend, colleague, coworker, or someone who's benefited your life. Jill's first message is a shout out to a longtime critique partner, Katie Tannis, a fabulous author illustrator. She masterminded persuasive visuals for Jill's recent nonfiction picture book sale, and, and she will be forever grateful. Most of all, Jill appreciates her longtime support her honesty and her insights, her insightful critiques, her ability to creatively multitask, including creating habitat for butterflies on the Jersey Shore, and her tender heart for underappreciated critters. 
Katie's debut author-illustrator board book, Love in the Wild, the first title in a series about how animals show their love for each other is fabulous. The second in the series, Love Under the Stars, is forthcoming from Mud Puppy in March 2024. Jill can't wait, and I, by proxy, can't wait to send it to all the little people uh, she knows. Thank you, Katie, says Jill, for a decade of friendship. Jill also sends shout-outs to her long-standing critique partners, uh, critique group, the Wednesday Afternoon Therapy Circle, and the Word Curd Nerds. Uh, Jill says, you all are my rocks and sounding boards. Jill's also grateful for the support and camaraderie of the 12 by 12 Picture Book Challenge and the Writing Barn's courage to create community. Jill most likely would have thrown in the towel on this writing for kids dream long ago without their steadfast presence during her writing journey. And one more shout out to the members of the middle grade and picture book craft discussion groups of the SEBWI South Bay region. Jill says we've learned so much from each other. I'm looking forward to many more insightful and spirited conversations. I am so grateful for you all. Thank you. And I will end this mid-episode break uh, by echoing her sentiments. Thanks, Jill. I am so grateful for you all. Thank you. And now back to Federico Arabia's verse. Well, so even um, the information about HIV and AIDS, I, I really wanted to be sure that I was being accurate in the time frame mm-hmm. um, because I, I'd been working uh, in the field of HIV pretty much since the beginning of the, of the pandemic. Um, I was in medical school in 19, yeah, 1984, um, which is just, you know, a couple years after HIV was first uh, identified um, here in, in, in America. So, you know, I'd, I'd been involved, I've been involved uh, in, uh, action committees or, you know, uh, groups that were trying to make changes politically. Um, and then obviously, I would, you know, through medical school and residency, and then later on in private practice, or not private practice, community health practice, um, I was working with HIV. And, you know, I, I distinctly remember that not long after Daniel's death, that uh, we finally figured out as a medical community uh, how to combine medications to help treat HIV. Um, until, you know, at the time of Daniel's death, we were still doing one drug at a time. And, you know, we know that that was ineffective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would never do that in, in this day and age. So uh, I wanted to be sure of, you know, when certain things change um, because, I wanted to make sure that I, I wasn't m- maybe um, thinking of a different patient or a different person when I was writing his story. Like, for instance, this is another example. Um, Doug, um, the young man who is Pedro's patient, um, is also a, a composite of several patients that I, as a doctor, took care of. and went to their homes to do home visits and met with their parents, usually mothers, but you know, met with their parents to discuss their care and oftentimes end of life care. Because if they were in their parents' homes in a hospital bed, it was usually toward the end of their life. Uh, so th- those stories were, you know, that story is uh, truthful, but it is a composite of m- multiple patients. Was that part of like working with those patients and sort of um, realizing, you know, the 
the best way to treat them versus, you know, what Daniel's treatment had been like? Was that part of the impetus for getting this book out? Like, how did that, I guess the underlying question is, what what was your journey from, you know, becoming a doctor and all the stuff and, you know, coming to, to terms to write this book? How did that come about? Well, um, so I, you know, I wanted to be a doctor since I was a little kid. And as I was entering the medical field and, you know, being a medical student, um, you know, I was becoming aware of HIV. So I really wanted to focus on gay health, gay men's health. Um, you know, at that time, we weren't really saying LGBTQIA, mm-hmm. but you know, that was my goal is to treat uh, folks who were having trouble getting healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that was already my focus years before Daniel was diagnosed. Um, and so when Daniel was diagnosed, I mean, you know, it was incredibly devastating um, because I knew at the time, being so involved in HIV care, that uh, there was very little that we could do for him. And, uh, you know, because I was, I think, 600 miles away, you know, he's in Columbus and I'm in Boston. And, you know, I could give him brotherly help and advice and love through the telephone or in our visits, but there really was very little I could do. I couldn't talk to his um, providers and suggest anything because there was very little to offer and to suggest at the time. And um, so, you know, like I said before, I I knew I wanted to write this, the, our story, um, and it's not just about the HIV. It was clearly like from childhood to uh, our, you know, mid mid twenties, mid to late twenties. Um, I knew I wanted to write this story at some point um, because I thought it was an important story to write. I thought it was important for kids like Pedro and Daniel, or myself and Daniel, to f- for the first time see themselves in the characters of the book. I mean, you've. I'm sure heard that many, many times that that children um, really need to be able to see themselves in the stories of a book. And I would say that in this case, children, teenagers and adults are probably going to see themselves for the first time in Pedro and Daniel, because it is a story unlike any other story that I've seen or read. Um, So I'm hoping that I will be reaching people from you know, childhood to adult um, who really want to see these types of stories written and told about people like themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's an, there's an amount of representation that you would hope to get with a book like this, but is, is there also, or have, have you felt intentional about um, the, the kind of the, the notion of uh, we walked so you could run a kind of a perspective that you're, you're hoping that, people who read it today will gain about the way things were either, you know, racially or uh, in terms of how much the recognition of LGBTQIA has grown or, you know, even the AIDS pandemic. I mean, how, how many things have changed about so many of the themes of your book? Um, it is, that has to be something you're trying to communicate intentionally as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I would say that each of those independently could be uh, discussed because, or should be discussed because, uh, like, for instance, uh, 
with regard to race, um, I, you know, as I've said many times in the work that I do with regard to uh, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, I've been working in that field for over 40 years, um, way before it was called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I would say that we we made some strides and some improvements before 9-11. And then um, once 9-11 occurred, then we are still in a, a rapid decline in terms of what we what we accomplished and how we advanced. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the ugliness of uh, racism and colorism really have come out significantly since then. Um, with regard to HIV, thankfully, uh, we've advanced significantly. And I think that a lot of people forget what it was like in the, uh, particularly in the 80s and early 90s. It was, um, it was devastating in so many ways. It devastated the gay community um, and so many other communities as well. Um, I, I think it's important to always recognize that women in color, women of color in particularly were devastated and are devastated by so many aspects of um, discrimination and hatred in, in society. Um, and so, you know, I think with regard to HIV, we can definitely show and see that we've improved significantly. Um, unfortunately, there are measures in various uh, state legislators at this point to prevent uh, insurance companies from uh, having to pay for preventive measures uh, so that um, people at risk can't get preventive measures for so that they won't get HIV infection. So we are going in the wrong direction for some things. You know, we, we've accomplished a significant um, preventive measure with these medications. And now we're going to deny people access to it. It's, it's really maddening and um, disheartening. Like, I, I can't understand. I can't understand why. I, um, I think um, the point that you're making is really important. Um, and kind of even if this is not the the intended uh, effect of your book, I think I think for for me you're highlighting something that's <clears throat> excuse me a really uh, like a critical um, <clears throat> a critical aspect of you know considering something that may be categorized as historical fiction, which is everything old is new again. And uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I try and I, I try and continually be conscious of my you know privileges as a heterosexual white male in the Midwest and what that affords me. And for me to, you know, I'm not going to ding my question because it's led to good, good discussion, but, um, <laughs> for me to ask the question of, you know, Oh, you know, do you, do you want people to see how much progress that's been made? Your answer is really well, well put. There's both a, a, a backwards looking, like, look at how the, how things used to be aspect to your book. Let's reflect on how things are, and let's also look forward so that this does not become cyclical, and we don't fall fa fall back to the way things used to be when they were so bad. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know um, something that I don't talk about in the book, but you know that is relevant to what we're talking about is um, you know uh, abortion rights. 
you know, we're, we're, it's the exact same idea of where we had advanced in giving people's rights. Um, and then we are gradually whittling them away. The same thing is happening. I'm sure you see it every time you look at a headline. There are anti-gay, anti-LGBTQIA measures in pretty much every state going on on a daily basis, trying to whittle away um, same-sex marriage and other same-sex rights that we fought very hard to achieve. And uh, every day we're just seeing how um, how rights are being challenged. Um, I was uh, listening to NPR yesterday where um, people who are disabled, who sue a, a facility or a business because they are not, uh, uh, they don't, they are not ADA compliant. Um, now some of those businesses are suing the disabled for having been sued. And it is actually gaining traction because um, they are arguing that the disabled are purposely looking for ADA non-compliant businesses to sue them. And, you know, of course, okay, well, the solution would be for businesses who have known about this for 30, I believe it's going on 32 years, to be ADA compliant. This is not something that happened just yesterday. Um, it's been around for 32 years. So you've had plenty of time to become ADA compliant. Heaven forbid also, even, you would want businesses to be accountable for it. Right. And even if people are going around looking for businesses that are not ADA compliant, like, okay, good. Like, cause, because you should be. So like, where is yeah. the, where is the ground to stand on? If you I want get, people to, yeah, walk around with guns and be vigilantes, certainly they could, you know, stuff, ask to have yeah. a ramp installed. Oh my gosh, that stuff gets me so riled. I I just I want to circle back real quick before I get way off topic because I could I could very easily but I um in terms of like representation and you know getting getting your book out there in such an important way and having people see themselves in this book. I mean for you know kids and beyond, I want to just I do, I just want to throw out CK's name here because I mm. know that you guys have become really close and I know mm. that they have you know, they very much appreciate what you have done and this book, this beautiful book that you have written. And I know that you've worked with them a lot in terms of marketing and helping get their book out as well. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there because I know I see posts all the time from them saying, you know, how exhausting it is to keep, you know, to try to keep like fighting this battle every day because they are trans uh, by, or sorry, by bi, bisexual intersex. Um, and that those rights also are coming under fire now, it, it like everywhere you turn. And it just, I feel like it's such a beacon for people who are fighting this fight that this book is out there and they see themselves in that book and it they matter, you know, like this book is out there for a reason and they exist and they matter and it's, you know, we, we see you, you're here. And so I just, I just wanted to throw, throw their name out there because. Thank you. I, um. CK is one of my favorite people in the world. Yeah. I mean, they are um, they are just so lovable. Yeah, uh, yes, that's a great word. Such a kind, giving, um, 
totally immersive when they get their mind to it, mm. uh, really help someone. Um, I just love everything about them. And, you know, I, I loved um, their book, Charlie. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed making, I, I made a book trailer for Charlie. That was um, one of my first Canva uh, attempts. <laughs> so it's not, I think I could do it better now, but I, it's just, it's such a funny, cute little book trailer that I just love to post it periodically to say, I love my book trailer of this wonderful book by one of my favorite people in the world. We'll put it, we'll put it in the show notes and we'll post it again with the podcast. Oh, great. There. Yeah. So that people Spread can it see in there. it. Yeah. I take a seen look. It. I don't think I have either. So I, yeah, I want to take a look and I'll put it on the, I'll put it in with the show notes. It cracks me up. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's just me, but it does crack me up. <laughs> there are little wanna, bats. There are little yeah. bats on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> I want to mentally earmark uh, your your very sweet shout out to uh, to CK and pull that forward as our like episode starting snippet. <laughs> just to set the, the tone. Um. So let's. I just want to circle back to real quick about how. So was this the book that got your agent and your editor? Is this the one that got the attention, or were you querying other things, or how did that? Happen. So I guess you don't know. I don't have an agent. Oh, um, okay. It was okay. on my list to ask you about because most people listed in their you know Twitter profiles. But so this I, was direct. That was sort yeah. of a follow up. Yeah, I was going to say, or do you maybe you don't have an agent? Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So um, you know uh, when I when I first wrote this, as you, as you probably all know, um, it started out as a fifty precious words uh, submission, yes. and then. I, I wrote that 50 precious words. Uh, I changed it into a picture book manuscript. So it went basically from 50 words to 500 words. And um, I had gone to the Quelly conference um, that year. It was two years ago. And as part of the Quelly conference, um, attendees were able to, to send um, their manuscripts directly to certain uh, agents and editors. Um, I know you can do that to agents, you know, anyway, but um, there were certain editors that you could query directly. And, um, you know, I did not know anything about Nick Thomas at the time. Um, I certainly knew about Living Querido because, you know, of their books. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, this was before The Last Quantista got all their the awards that it got. So it was, you know, maybe in the second year of... Um, of Living Querido, but it had just gotten the Bologna um, Book Festival recognition for the best children's book publishers. So it was high on my list of uh, you know publishers to consider. Mm. And so I sent it to Nick. Um, I, this is it's funny. I say this all the time, but I sent it to him on Oscar night. Um, I was rushing to finish this query to him. So that I could go and, you know, see the dresses on the red carpet. On, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, should I send it? Should I send it? <laughs> yeah, it's a big night. I get that. Yeah. So I was, I was obsessing. It's like, you know, is it ready? Is it ready? I'd already read it, reread it many, many times. But it's At like, least a oh. hundred of the 200 yeah. times, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I hit send. And um, the next morning... I got a response from him saying, you know, can we set up a, a, a Zoom meeting? And I'm like, that is 
fast. Not be right. You're like, <laughs> right. You're like, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You weren't watching the Oscars. You took way too short a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Did you not see the You're not the one for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he is as obsessed with the red carpet as I am, but you know, I don't know for sure. I just I would I just assume that. But um yeah, so we set up a, a Zoom and um God, we, we gammed for about an hour and he wanted to know all about me and he wanted me to send him everything I had. And I had already started to write some of the other, and these were all picture books. And my mind is like, okay, I can't believe that I can write a novel, even though that was my goal. Um, so let me write picture book manuscripts. I can handle 500 words, 500 words, 500 words. And so I had, uh, at that time, I think I had maybe eight total stories. Um, and so, of course, I had to, you know, really rush to polish them. And then that's when I, you know, CK, Andrew Hackett, um, mm -hmm. God, uh, I'm forgetting, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting, I love you all, like, <laughs> partners. But, In um, true Oscars <laughs> speech style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I sent them. My story says, like, please help, you know, living querido. They were like, yes, let's do this. And um, so I got these eight stories. And by that time, I by the time I sent them to Nick, there were 10 stories that I sent him. And uh, he said, you know, can you put them together? He was thinking, you know, into chapter books. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do the work to expand on this, then I need to be truer to the story mm -hmm. and complete in the story. And that means that it can't be chapter books. It's going to have to be a novel. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I started writing the novel. Wow. Were, were these were these eight to 10 stories all related vignettes? Yeah, so they are, um, they are all in part one of the book. They are each the, uh, one of the chapters of that um of part one uh, okay. makes sense where it's age appropriate for, <laughs> for right, right, right. audiences so, right. you know the one of the things that uh, i it's kind of hard to explain to people that part one is uh, its own arc uh, it's a 16 month period one month at a time uh when the boys are five to seven years old and um told in third person so that you know, it can help explain what's happening to the children uh, during those really rough formative year or months. And so, um, it, and that's also one of the reasons why uh, when I wrote them as picture books, they were in third person because, you know, again, I, the, I couldn't get a child to fully explain what was happening in such an abusive home situation. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of pushback from people about uh, my manuscripts as picture books because it's like, um, you know, this seems a little too difficult or whatever for children. And it's like, I totally agree, but children live that every single day of the year throughout the world. And why not have children see themselves in a book? And, you know, when they were picture book manuscripts, they weren't graphic in any way. They were a lot, there was a lot of nuance to how I was presenting it all. Um, certainly that's changed when I changed them from picture books to chapters of my novel. But um, 
within each of those chapters, I think you could probably imagine them as a shorter picture book length story. Absolutely. Um, uh, without, you know, a lot of the trauma and the violence mm. that's in the book. So when you, sorry, when you guys were talking, when you were talking to Nick and he asked, could you expand these? And then you said, well, I think I'm going to need to make it a novel. What, what was his reaction? Was he like, yeah, okay, let's do this. Like send it to me when it's ready or how did Nick, that happen? A lot of the times when I say something to Nick, his reaction is cool. <laughs> I like <laughs> Nick. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, um, I like that idea. And, you know, you can tell from their catalog that they really like to have the author kind of figure things out, how they're going to do it. And, and they're okay with with uh, things that are not, um, you know, not the typical cookie cutter approach to storytelling. No. And, um, and so he, he did give me pretty much free reign to kind of approach it the way I wanted to. Um, and, you know, you can, again, you can tell from, from reading the book that it's not like most books in terms of the story arcs mm-hmm. um, in the, in the structure and the formatting of the book itself. And so um, when I, my original intention was to have it um, be like a, a story like one of the chapters of part one and then the boys in their middle years and the boys in their well young men years and to kind of have them be you know going back and forth back and forth back and forth um similar to um uh, the netflix show or maybe it's hbo uh, my brilliant friend um which is uh, about two women in in um i believe naples italy um, and it, it kind of follows the two girls into ch- teenage years and in, as adults uh, over time. And it kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that was kind of my original approach. Mm. Um, but, you know, he suggested that we try to do it chronologically. And so that's when I, I said, well, okay, well, then let's do part one completely its own, kind of like a novella within the novel, uh, its own it, it, it stands on its own as um, as an arc, and then to have parts two, three, four, and five be alternating stories between Pedro and Daniel, you know, from childhood to adulthood. Um, it, it it occurs to me, um, take like taking taking a step back and, and looking at how that this this book has unfolded for you to suggest that this just on its face would be um i mean certainly how it's evolved um but you know presenting the novel as itself would be a um a tougher sell for a cold query to an agent to represent something that is so um unique and high concept and personal i I didn't think I was going to draw a line between uh, Pedro and Danielle and uh, our conversation with Laurel Snyder that we had last week, but um, uh, Endlessly Ever After uh, is something that we talked about at length in that conversation. And, uh, you know, this notion that it, it, it was such an evolving book, a negotiation 
that is built on a trusting relationship with an, an editor seems like a really, really just like a, a unicorn type of uh, relationship that unfolded just to give you the chance to sort of, and Laurel as well, to give you the chance to sort of put out the book that meant the most to your heart and that took the shape that, that made the most sense to you. A- absolutely. And uh, again, a credit to Nick. Um, and I would say that, uh, I've heard interviews with um, uh, Donna Higuera, who wrote The Last Quintista, mm-hmm. um, and she has she recounted a story about one of her novels, it might have been her first novel, where it was a similar uh, idea or concept where, you know, she had a little bit of an idea of a story that she wanted to tell, and... Uh, he trusted her to write what she wanted to write, and then they worked together to create the story that ended up being in the book. Um, so I, it's a credit to Nick to um, to allow for that kind of uh, approach in editing. Uh, I don't think most editors would be okay with that. Uh, and you're right. Um, one of the reasons why I haven't really attempted to find um, an agent, you know, kind of the way I probably should be trying to do it, um, is because my approach to writing is unlike most writers. And I don't, I don't know that most agents would be comfortable with that. Um, You know, the, the manuscripts that I do have are unusual. Um, so it's just really one of those things where, you know, an agent uh, would need to be okay with taking a chance, you know, to promote a writer that is uh, unusual and unlike others, uh, or unlike the, the usual, and then to try to find an editor who would be open to exploring those types of stories. I'm really resonating with what you're saying in terms of my, my own work <laughs> thus far unpalatable to agents and very unusual. <laughs> I love that word. Um, well, you know, the, the same story that I sent Nick that, you know, he fell in love with, um, I sent to several editors and agents that same night as part of the Quelly conference. Um, and, you know, no surprise, I didn't hear from many of them. Um, and from others, it's like, well, I don't really get it, mm. you know, or like, you know, the voice isn't right or, you know, those types of things. And, um, you know, when I look back, it's like, I'm glad they didn't say yes, because I I need the type of person who is going to say there's something here. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I like it. Um, and I want to explore this with you. That's the type of approach that I would like with a, an agent if I were to get an agent. Yeah. And the experience that a lot of us have is getting the feedback of, I, I don't I don't have a vision for this. Mm-hmm. When you get a rejection uh, or a pass or however you frame it up. And ultimately, you know, 
at, at least in retrospect, once it's in the process of being out into the world, it starts to look like a good thing, like you just said, where, you know, I don't, I don't want this to be in the wrong hands where somebody's not going to give their all to make this Absolutely. exactly the, the piece of art that it should be. Absolutely. And, you know, I have uh, over the last couple of years seen so many authors who have, you know, gone through the divorce of their agent um, because things didn't work out or, you know, the agent, for whatever reason, didn't really believe in their in their stories or in their approach. Um, and that's, a, you know, I it, it's actually a line in the novel that I'm writing. The adult fiction is like, I don't I'm not really good at divorcing people. So I would rather not enter the relationship mm. if there is a possibility of divorce. Mm. Your I, husband's um, very ha happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> I um I recently had a I won a critique from Ebony um during her Friendsgiving um celebration last November. Mm -hmm. Um and so I recently sent her something that I wanted critiqued and she the way she critiques is she does a pre-Zoom critique so she can talk to you about you know, the voice and sort of what you want to get out of the story so that she's critiquing in the best way possible, right? So that she's critiquing your vision, not her vision of what your story should be, right? Okay. So yeah. I, you know, that's, I love that on so many levels. And it was so generous of her to offer the Zoom, you know, beforehand, because I figured it would just be a, a straight critique and she would send right. it to me and that would be it, right? Mm -hmm. Um so she she is super chatty, self-proclaimed, right? I'm also really <laughs> chatty. So we spent two hours on Zoom before her husband was like, um, excuse me, it's bedtime. Can you, are you done? We, you know, we, we talked about the manuscript for maybe like 15, 20 minutes, right? The rest of it was all about just like publishing and your your mental perspective. And so my my point in telling you this is that she said something that I just thought was so it it changed my perspective entirely. And she said, you have to be prepared to turn down a deal. Like you have to you have to have so much confidence and trust in your own work that you aren't gonna take you aren't gonna just take a deal because you're out there, you know, querying in desperation or because Absolutely. you just like, you know, you just want it out there. You have to be so confident and secure in what you have written and what you're presenting that you're like, look, I don't think that you're the right person for the job. You right. see my my story in a way that I don't I don't agree with, and so I'm gonna have to pass. You know, like I I just thought that was so um, sort of what's the word empowering because I feel like mm -hmm. as authors, right, where when we're trying to get out there, it is a lot of desperation. You know, you're just like whoever, whoever sees this, whoever's going to represent me, like, awesome, great, fine. I just need, you know, I just need an agent. I don't care who it is. Like, let's just do this. But if it's not going to be the right agent, then yeah, you're going to end up looking at that divorce somewhere down the line, right? right. Or Absolutely. same with an editor, right? Or you're going to get a deal that you don't appreciate, or you don't think values your work. And that's not anybody's fault except for yours, because you have to be the one who's looking out for your stuff and make sure that you're confident enough, like Ebony said, to turn down that deal, which I just, yes. that was, that was a, a big perspective shift for me. Mm, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I, I see a lot of authors who, you know, through the various uh, social networks that I, that I'm part of, uh, you know, on, on Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever, um, who just want an agent and, um, 
I, I really want to celebrate when they get an agent, but I, I want to in some way communicate is like, just make sure it's the right one, hmm. not just any, but make sure it's the right one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's especially hard to do, right? Too, when you're just starting out, because you're like, well, Absolutely. I don't know, they like my stuff and I, I want an agent. So like, I think they're the one, right? Like, <laughs> they're going to rub they're, my stuff. They're, yeah, they're the one, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, but if it, if their agent truly loves their stuff, then yes, that sounds like it's the right agent. But there are some times where it doesn't necessarily sound like that's really the case. They, mm. like they, they loved one of them and, you know, I didn't really have you know, the four or five other polished manuscripts. So, you know, it's kind of like a... Um, one-off like I'll, I'll represent you and hopefully by the time this gets through your other ones will have you know really blossomed and sometimes that yeah, doesn't have standards right. yeah right yeah. yeah um well I, we're we're getting oh sorry josh were you gonna ask a yes and i I'm, i know our our little ticker has gone uh above an hour but what yeah. i'm gonna circle back around because we never talked about how your life and your experience with your book has changed post kirkus star Oh we talked about gosh, all the ways right. that you got recognized uh, before you got the Kirkus Star, but now that you're now that you're famous and well known, <laughs> is it different? <laughs> yeah, is it very red carpet for you now? It's like everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, like I, going into a grocery store, I have to like say I'm sorry. You know, can you call <laughs> right, me? right. Can you you, you go to the yeah, yeah, you go to the book section and you signed all sign all. No, um, like. <laughs> so um, the only reason I say kind of before and after, like, and, and we did start talking about this before, is that um, once you get a, a Kirkus Star in particular, um, most libraries and, and a lot of uh, booksellers uh, subscribe to Kirkus, either the actual uh, digital or the physical magazine, and get it um, delivered to them. And... Uh, and so they will, and I've heard this from multiple librarians and booksellers, they will automatically order books mm. that got a star from Kirkus. Mm. Like it's probably the same for other um, trade reviewers as well. Um, but I've only talked to people about Kirkus because that's the only one that I can really talk to them about at this, at this point. And so that is definitely one of the ways that, um, that it changes how uh, people are, are aware of it. So now I can't necessarily tell if people have heard about Pedro and, and Daniel um, through my own social media marketing or through, or was it through uh, because of the Kirkus? Mm. So my hope is that it will open many doors. Um, and that does tend to be the case with, with something like a Kirkus star. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah. you know, we, we'll, we'll see. Two, I, I don't, I don't mean to, I'm, I'm going to try not to characterize this as, as a, a pay to play situation, but it, do I understand right for Kirkus that there is a sort of investment in um, ha having their eyes on your book or do I not, I'm not thinking about it that way? Um, it, it's not a, um, Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm thinking of something else, but it's oh, not, is, is yeah. there a, a financial aspect to saying, you know, Kirkus, I'm going to submit this to you. Here's my no, you know, fee for your not analysis. For, not for traditionally published books. So oh, I see. if you are an independent 
independently published book, you can send your book in to get a Kirkus review, and then you pay for it. I see. Okay. As far as I know, I mean, I I didn't send it to Kirkus. The, the publisher did. Yeah. But I don't believe that they have to pay Kirkus in order for them to... Um, or, or if they do, it's via a separate sort of contractual. Yeah, I can't imagine that. <clears throat> excuse me, I can't imagine that they have to pay, but I don't know that for sure. Yep. I, I just assume that it's that people just pay. I mean, the, send it in, and it gets reviewed. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a point worth pulling it out, even if my supposition was wrong, um, just to make sure that you know, as you're evaluating, this is how we're speaking to the audience here, as you're evaluating, you know, how your publisher is going to back the book, make sure that this process, which either may lead to um, more widespread attention or, or potentially increased sales is something that's on sort of the marketing and submission radar and media plan. Yeah. Um, I, I, I believe there are eight traditional um, reviewers like Kirkus and um, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, um, school journal, library journal, um, and a few others that I can't remember, um, that again, I, I, assuming that there isn't a, a monetary, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that they don't have to pay for it, um, that your publisher should be sending the book to these eight trade reviewers for review. Now, many books that are submitted are, don't get a review at all. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's not that's not unusual for Nothing's people guaranteed. to have had their right. books right. sent in, um, and but I, I think if the what you might be alluding to, but it's a little different, is that um, it's probable that um, places like Kirkus will make sure that they review books by Living Querido and uh, other um, you know well known, well respected publishers. Uh, so yeah. there may be. I think, I think I you're right. I think some publishers have a better track record of getting reviews. And it's also, you know, for anybody who is listening, because I'm sort of at the beginning of this like publishing journey and just learning, uh, you know, as I go. But it's a good question to ask, you know, if you get editor attention and if you're going to sign with a publisher, you know, something to ask is who who do you send it to? Who do you send my book to for reviews? And uh, you know, follow-up question, do they, you know, what is your track record like? Like, do they get back to you? Do they generally review your stuff? So it's a good, it's something good to ask, you know, in the sort of contract negotiation stuff, just to see, you know, what, what you're dealing with and when, when and where your book might end up. So we've, we've hit um, well over an hour at this point. So we'll be respective, respectful of your time. And then, you know, eventually our listeners time, I, we didn't get to ask about all your volunteering with SCBWI and I wanted to make sure and talk um, about Pepito as well. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, I, I've got time, so I don't know if there is a limit to how much you can broadcast. The the worst thing that could happen is that we split this conversation into two. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's the worst. (laughs) Worst case scenario. So yeah, let's hear about Pepito. We'll have to listen to us more. (laughs) Yeah, so um, Pepito, uh, the stories are called The Amazing True Stories of Pepito the Squirrel, um, based on an actual squirrel that I... um, nursed back to health when I found him in the street uh, after what appeared to be an injury that affected nerves to his legs. 
Um, so he was not able to use his back legs uh, when I found him. He was crawling with his front paws toward me. Um, and he was oh my gosh, a little baby <laughs> squirrel. So just imagine how cute. Oh, and heartbreaking. That poor, oh, absolutely. That poor squirrel. Oh, my gosh. And um, I, I've said this many times, so I'll say it again. I am the biggest scaredy cat of anything that can run quicker than I can. Uh, <laughs> so general, if you're anything like, like me, that's most things. <laughs> I'll remember that if we ever hang out. I won't do any, like, speed walking or anything next to you so we can, like, hang <laughs> out and be friends. Movement. Yeah. <laughs> so in general, a squirrel falls in that category, but this little guy clearly could not run. So, you know, my, my biggest fear is that he was going to, um, you know, run over and then climb up my leg, but get under my pants. Oh my gosh. The sensation, <laughs> like, like a cartoon. <laughs> that is the worst case visual that I, I have with these types yeah. of things. And he, he ended up literally just kind of coming onto my boot that I was wearing. And he just kind of, you know, st stood there. And, um, and so I had to call, uh, I was across the street from my house that I was working on and I had to call one of the workers to get me a bucket and I put him into a bucket. And, um, you know, there are great videos uh, that we can link as well to here. I, I have dozens and dozens of videos that we took of Pepito Aww. doing his physical therapy um, on this contraption that I created. Oh and my gosh. You, I feel like you are like the most like well, well-rounded, like creative person we've ever had on this podcast. Like, are you kidding me? You're making your own swag. You're putting your book inside a jacket for your launch. You've created this amazing book. You're making contraptions for the squirrel. You worked in AIDS. Like, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything you can't do. So I just thank God Pepito found you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there, there, there isn't much that I won't try to do. You know, I, I, I designed and renovated this house that we live in. Of course um, you did. Yeah. You know, Which I, looks I very nice myself, for the listening audience. It's amazing. Um, I taught myself how to uh, make furniture and cabinetry. So after I left medicine, I became a cabinet uh, maker and a, and a furniture maker. So, you know, I, I definitely have bounced around in terms of um, the types of things that, uh, that I've worked in. And um, yeah, so lots of, lots of different things that I've tried. And uh, what I, I say at, at, the, at the end of the book, the, the acknowledgments, I, I mentioned how Pepito changed me on a chemical level. And, um, you know, when the pandemic hit is when I realized that not only do people probably not want me to go into their house to make furniture and, and cabinets, I don't want to go into their houses to make mm -hmm. furniture and cabinets. So uh, I had to, um, I had to figure out a new, a new venture, a new, uh, mm -hmm. a new occupation. And so um, I sat down and started writing the Pepito books. And that's how I got into um, publishing. I didn't know what I was doing clearly. I, I just sat down and started writing these books and I illustrated them with uh, stills of the videos that um, that I had taken of him. And, you know, I kind of uh, manipulated the images and cartoonized them uh, to make them into the illustrations. And um, then 
I published them. I self-published them. I didn't know what I was doing. I just decided, okay, you know, I went, he had a significant social media following when, you know, when this all happened, he had more followers than I did. And, <laughs> you know, let's, let me have put this out there for people to, you know, have a follow-up of, of Pepito. And so I, I hit send and, you know, got a bunch of uh, books sent back to me. And it's like, okay, so now how do I get these into the hands of people? You know, right, yeah. Come? I had to figure out marketing. So I have been working in marketing and figuring out marketing for over two years, which is one of the reasons why I know so much about how to promote myself as best as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I did send it in for a Kirkus review. So that's why I know that I had to pay it was like $45 or something like that. It's not a lot. Of money. Oh, it's fairly nominal. Yeah. Um, and they recently had a sale um, that I didn't need because, you know, I'm not doing independent publishing right now. But um, and that Kirkus review did help. It wasn't a star review, but it was a um, critical. I forgot how they put it, but, you know, it's one of those like get it type of reviews. Yeah. Wow. Uh, very cool. And, and so that definitely helped because, you know, when Kirk says to get it, people got it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. People do. People listen to Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, what else did you want to know about Pepito? I could talk about Pepito. Well, I, I asked because I, I asked because you, um, uh, Pedro and Danielle is positioned as your, as your debut. And in, you know, doing a little bit of research before the conversation, I came across, you know, these, these books and it, it seemed worthy of investigation one, because it's super cute. And, uh, and two, because, you know, it's, it is different, differentiated in how it hit the market significantly from Pedro and Danielle, which would, you know, it, it's, it's a contrasting experience that I'm, I'm glad we asked about it because it's, it's sort of informed how you've approached marketing. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, well, so I, I would say that, you know, Pedro Ranel is, is being listed as my debut novel um, mm. mm-hmm. as opposed to debut book. Um, and, you know, that's probably part marketing. That's part of, you know, part of how um, Living Querido suggested that we kind of word it. Um, because, you know, I, I'm in a debut group where people, uh, same type of idea where they are, uh, so many of them have written other types of books and this is like their debut YA or their debut middle grade or, or what have you. Um, that kind of helps differentiate in some ways so that people know that is is their first approach or the first attempt at that kind of age group. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, I learned so much about marketing um, and that's when I first started realizing that like I have no idea what I'm doing. And I, you know, I started, um, it's only been two years when I joined SCWI and 12 by 12 picture book. Um, and I dove into the forums to try to figure out what, where do I start? And, you know, one of the reasons why um, I'm doing this blog for SCWI next month is um, I am, uh, I'm doing a particular post on how do you start? Like, mm. what do you need to do? Because um, I do so many virtual mingles with people 
Uh, and many times there are newbies, like literally like no clue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to tell them the, the very basics, you know, find your writing community, find your critique partners, um, figure out what you need to write. You know, yeah. what, what is your what is your ideal writing location? And find your favorite podcast. I mean, a- I'm absolutely. just saying. <laughs> I'm just teasing. And then one of the writing tools that I recommend is um, you need to read. I, I believe that reading is a writing tool. You need to have read and you need to continue to read, or in my case, listen to audiobooks, um, in order to really hone your craft. You, you, you constantly need to be learning the craft, just like in any other craft, um, you know, in medicine, you, you don't just become a doctor and that's it. You have to continue to take continuing medical, edu- medical education. Mm-hmm. Teachers need to continue to certify and, um, you know, pretty much any craft, you have to continue to learn what you're doing and how other people are doing it and how you might improve what you're doing. So, um, so I give people a variety of tips. Um, and, you know, not that I am the know-it-all or like the, you know, accomplished 50 books type of person. But uh, in two years of really immersing myself in the industry, and because I do so much of the volunteer work and have learned from some of the best and have worked with some of the best in some of the work that I'm doing, um, I can see what some of the basics are. And I can help people at least get back past some of their the roadblocks mm-hmm. so that they can move forward and and stop, you know, being at the place like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Uh, because so many people come to these mingles as a newbie and say, I want to get an agent, but they don't have a story yet. They haven't written a story yet, or they don't have you know, a, a polished story, or they have a story that they love, but they don't have critique partners. So they don't realize that they may love the story, but it needs to be loved by others as well. So they need the critique partners to really hone the story and make it the best that it can. Um, and that in most cases, is not just the one story. You've got to have other stories ready to go when an agent says, I love this story. What else have you got? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you don't necessarily advise something that we've talked about on here before, which is to write a first draft and then send it out immediately to the highest (laughs) profile agents in the industry as a rite of passage. Which we have both done. So, (laughs) and it should definitely be a rhymer. It should be rhyming only, right? And then send it to like Jennifer Marsh Soloway, which is what is exactly what I did. So yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Federico, I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your generous time and your insights and just coming to talk to your talk to us about your beautiful book. We thank you so much. And your heart. Thank you both. I really Mm -hmm. appreciate it. It's been wonderful. And like I said, this is the first time that I've actually talked to people about my book. So uh, it's it's fun. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for letting us be the first. We are honored. Thanks for listening this week. 
Find all of our episodes and other associated links and information at linktree.com slash verse show. Or reach out to us on Twitter. Thanks again, and we'll see you next verse. Bye.